Funding for The Spark is provided by Capital Blue Cross, focused on creating a healthier future for our communities through innovations like Capital Blue Cross Connect Health and Wellness Centers, which provide in-person services and inspire healthy living. Learn more at CapitalBlueCross.com. The Spark is also supported by UPMC, providing primary and advanced specialty care throughout all of central Pennsylvania and beyond. A list of providers in the area can be found at upmc.com slash findadoc. Welcome to The Spark. I'm Anaya Falcon. A Harrisburg University of Science and Technology Environmental Sciences and Sustainability professor discovered and named a 5 million year old horned turtle that's extinct and is entirely new to science. The discovery will help scientists in their research of reptiles. Dr. Stephen Jasensky joins us to share how he discovered the fossil species of the horned turtle, his passion behind his work, and what his discovery will mean for the world of science. Dr. Stephen and thank you so much for joining us today. And thank you for having me. So, Dr. Stephen, how did you discover this turtle? So, the basics behind how I, I suppose, discovered it was that I, I found fossils originally and also many that had already been collected in a museum. And I did a lot of background research to determine that these were something distinct from anything we had known before. So, that gets into the basics behind how I discovered it was something new and then started me on the path to writing this up, publishing it and getting the name out there. But the the actual path that the turtle took to being first discovered started well before me. And it was the fossil uh, was discovered that at the gray fossil site. Can you tell us about the gray fossil site and what it does? Sure. So the gray fossil site was originally discovered in 2000, so the turn of the century here, and it was discovered during a project where they were widening a road. There was a hillside that they needed to cut through to make the road wider and create more offshoots of that road. And what they discovered was that this hillside was something very different than everything else around it. What it ended up being was an ancient sinkhole within the hundreds of millions of years old limestone in that area. When they discovered this sinkhole, they also discovered a lot of fossils, things that we had no idea would have been around at that time in this area. And so what that led to was a the beginning of this being set aside by the governor at that, that time, Don Sunquist, to preserve this. They allowed control of it to a local university who then started systematically digging through the material, finding fossils, cataloging that, preserving that. And so the first specimens were found around that time in 2000, and it had continued on after that. So I came along a little over a decade later as a student and started looking at these fossils. Wow. And I know the Grave Fossil Site uh, preserves a 5 million year old ecosystem. How do they go about doing that? So the, the way we date the system to know it was 5 million years is based off of the animals that were there. And so some of the animals that we first learned about were things like tapirs and short-faced bears and things like that that helped us narrow down the age of, of when these things would have been around. And, and certainly we don't have tapirs here in this being northeastern Tennessee. We don't have tapirs around that time, but we get a lot of other things like red pandas, which if we know what red pandas are, they're certainly not anywhere close to this side of the world anymore. 
but we get Eurasian badgers, again, badgers that are currently known from Europe and Asia. We get a lot of other things, ancient mastodon, really, really old mastodons and things like that. It helps us narrow down the age of this locality, and it tells us what we're looking at. And more recently, we've done a lot more work with small mammals. Think of the rodents, think of really small carnivores, things like that, and that's helped us narrow down the age even more. Can you describe the horned turtle that you discovered for us? Sure. So the, the horned turtle, while it sounds like it's got horns on its head, which would be really neat, and to be honest, there are some ancient fossil turtles that are like that on the other side of the world. This turtle had extensions on the anterior part of its shell, the front of the shell, right around the neck, and these would have looked like two horns, almost like devil horns, but horns coming off the front of this turtle's shell. And so what this shows is that this is an extreme version of a morphology, the shape of the shell, compared to what we see today or what we've seen in other turtles of this group in the fossil record. So it's most definitely something to think. There's lots of other smaller features around the shell, features of the skull that also show this is something different, but the weird anterior horns on the front of the shell are what helps give it its name. Were the horns present in both sexes of the horned turtle, and were they used for a particular reason? So today we have really tiny versions of these on the males of painted turtles that we have today. In this fossil turtle, they're present in both sexes. We find them on all the shells that we get, and they are much, much, much larger in the males. And because they're different sizes in the, in the two different sexes, males and females, it is highly suggestive um, based off of everything we know that this is then some kind of sexual selection situation where the more extreme versions suggest you are a better mate and you will do better. So. The goal is to get the largest horns possible, show them off to the other <laughs> sex, and prove to them that you are the best at getting the next generation of turtles out there. Wow, interesting. So what's the meaning behind the name of the horned turtle, the other name, which is the Chrysomus craniculata uh, name, and how did you come up with that? So Chrysomys is the, the group of turtles in general. When we come up with scientific names, Scientific names are a two-part system. There's a genus, that's the first name, and they show what things are related to each other. And then there's a species name that really distinguishes it from everything else. So Chrysomys is the same genus as the modern painted turtles we have today um, that are more common as far as pond turtles that you'll see out in a lot of water bodies in our area. And so because it's very similar, it's similar to that, we consider it the same group, they're closely related. So Chrysomys is maintained. Craniculata, as a species, distinguishes it from everything else. And you can name new species off of many different things. Sometimes they're named in honor of people, sometimes in honor of places. But in this situation, the weird shape of the shell was distinct enough that we wanted to really focus in on having that signify the distinctiveness of this species. So the turtle is also known as the horned painted turtle. So for those who don't know, why is this species called uh, the painted turtle? And what is the lifespan and some of the characteristics of that species? So painted turtles, if you look at them from the top, they look like really generic turtle shells. They're mostly black to a dark green sometimes, but they're a really, really dark shell on top, on that top shell. And there's not much to that. But if you turn a painted turtle over, 
what you get are a lot more colors. The plastron, the lower shell on the stomach, can sometimes be an orange to a yellow, but around the edge of the shell, it's normally a very bright orange with a lot of different dark and light patterns. There's reds, there's dark blacks, sometimes there's yellows in there. And because of that, the idea is that the edge of the shell looked like it was painted. So that's how this turtle ended up getting its name, um, in particular also because it's, it's a lot more colorful than a lot of other members of the, the group of turtles it's a part of. Hmm, very interesting. What was your reaction when you realized that you uh, found this turtle, the horned turtle? So when you find something new, the first initial instance when you realize it's something new is excitement, you're happy, it's, this is great, now I get to show this to the world and I get to add to our knowledge of biodiversity, of the diversity of life in the world as a whole. However, you also as a researcher realize how much time and work and energy is now going to go into the process of doing this. It's not something that you dislike, it's just something that you know is going to be very time intensive, it's going to take a long time, it's going to take a lot of work, but the end product is always worth it. And so even though you know that you're going to have months or more time and energy to put into this, it's all going to be worth it in the end. So, Dr. Stephen, throughout your career, you've been uh, the mem- a member of several different research teams that have named and discovered different mammals, dinosaurs, and turtles. Did you discover the horn turtle on your own? So, essentially, I well, I was not the first one to collect any specimen of the horn turtle. I was the first one to discover it was new, and. Oftentimes in science, you work on research teams. This one happened to be one that I, I did on my own, essentially, which does happen, wow. not always, but it does happen on occasion. Can you tell me about some of the mammals, dinosaurs, and turtles that you've helped discover uh, or name in the past? So oftentimes, a lot of my work is focused in the United States. Oftentimes, further west, when I work on dinosaurs, there's not nearly as much dinosaur fossil material here in the east. So I've worked on a number of dinosaurs. Most of them have been focused in the southwestern United States, things like New Mexico, although I've worked further north as well. And those include things like the raptoral dinosaurs, so things like Velociraptor, but relatives of that. And I've worked on things called oviraptorosaurs. Think of like a gigantic parrot, oftentimes without teeth, and also ceratopsids, so the horned frilled dinosaurs. Wow. And that's been wonderful every time I've been able to work on any of those projects. So I want to know more about you and how you gained an interest in science. So I think I've, I grew up in a very rural area and a lot of my time was spent outside playing in the dirt, playing in water, playing in streams, getting filthy, but enjoying every minute of that. And a lot of it was just discovery, right? Learning new things, seeing new things. And I think my, my love of science has really been focused in nature ever since then. So starting out, I, I did whatever I could, but once I got into school, the, the mystery of paleontology, the mystery of what was around before that you can no longer see, but that we kind of understand based off of what we see today was always a massive interest to me. So I began basically upon finishing up my bachelor's degree volunteering at the State Museum here in Harrisburg. And that got me a lot more opportunities to see fossils, to work with fossils, and to start out working in research. Hmm. 
Have you always had an interest in turtles, or is that just one type of reptile that you're intrigued by? I am intrigued by all reptiles, but turtles probably are at the top of the list. Okay. I Playing around outside and being in a rural area, and there's being just a lot of nature and not nearly as much in town, it gave me the ability to explore, and certainly finding turtles was an easy aspect of that. Unfortunately, they're not exactly fast, so also <laughs> kind of handling them was significantly a part of that, but it, it raised my interest level in turtles as a whole. And so I've worked with both living turtles and fossil turtles now, essentially since then, and I continue to do that along with all the other research I do. Do you have some of your own? Out of curiosity, I'm asking. I currently do not, although I've had many turtles in many forms in the past, um, and that's always a possibility. The knowledge that turtles can live so long and knowing that you know, that might be something that either I take care of for the rest of my life and or I pass along to someone else is one of the main reasons I've, I've held off getting any more recent ones. Yeah, you talked about passing it on to someone else. Do you have fam family members that share a similar interest? I do, although to be fair, the ones that share the most interest are probably my mom, um, who I've gotten a lot of my love of animals and nature from, and my dad as well. And my, my brothers, which I have two of, certainly have that enjoyment as well, but it's not nearly, not unsurprisingly, to the same level that I did. <laughs> so you discovered a turtle species that is entirely new to science. Has anything like this ever been done by a professor at Harrisburg University or any school within Pennsylvania? So... Portions of Pennsylvania have had this happen every so often, but not, not very often. And, and, and here at Harrisburg University, prior to me, I suppose, we haven't, the university hasn't been along those lines or lucky enough to have someone in that same realm doing that research to be able to find those things. Uh, a lot of Pennsylvania, as far as the fossil record is concerned, is really, really old. So oftentimes the fossils we're finding were deposited way before turtles were actually around. And so there's not nearly as many opportunities to find fossil turtles within the state or really close by. Hmm. So how big of a win was this for Harrisburg University? And what was the impact of your discovery at your school? I think if nothing else, part of what we get for Harrisburg University in particular, it, it helps expand the profile, which is a good thing. And it, it helps show that Harrisburg University and the professors within it, right, and the, the individuals within it, are conducting research, are helping push these scientific narratives and the idea of this information much further, which is always good. Oftentimes, what I hope is that it also expands the interest of the students. And so if nothing else, even if they don't want to do the exact same research or go into the exact same field as I am, if it helps expand that interest and at least allow them to think about that moving forward in whatever they do, I think that's a win. Definitely. So how does your discovery help scientists with their research on reptiles? So one of the key aspects we know about painted turtles, other than the fact that they are really expansive as far as their range, their biogeographic range, is that they use what is called temperature-dependent sex determination. What that basically means is that when they lay their eggs, they're not the only reptiles or turtles that do this, but when they lay their eggs, if it happens within particular temperature ranges, you will get a particular sex within the eggs of that, be they male or female. And so what we can use them as is a gauge to determine how 
what the temperatures are on our planet. If the temperatures significantly change, which is what we're seeing right now through time, these turtles are gonna have a real difficult time having say equal amounts of male and female young. And if you only get one sex for the young, the species is not going to survive and it's gonna have a lot of issues with climate changes that occurs. And you mentioned climate climate change as one of the reasons why the horned turtle is extinct today. Are there other reasons? Chances are when we look at smaller individuals like this, we have a, this is not a very expansive range for this turtle. Currently, we don't know that it's living a lot of other places. And so that makes it difficult to determine exactly what the issue might be. But, but what we can say is that when you get changes in environment, changes in temperature, changes in resources, you're going to cause issues. What we know is that modern painted turtles, Chrysomys picta as the species, were starting to really come into their own and evolve around this time. And what it looks like probably happened in this instance is that Chrysomys picta did better with changing resources and the changing environment and climate than Chrysomys craniculata did. So chances are it had to deal with changing conditions, which didn't help. And it was partially outcompeted by a relative turtle that was starting to evolve at that point in time. So what can we do to prevent the extinction of turtles from happening? So part of the, the aspects that we have to deal with is the fact that these turtles are going to be partially reliant on the conditions around there. And the more we change the environment, the faster it changes the harder it is for them to keep up and do those changes. Now, one aspect you could think about or that when we get changing conditions, these turtles could try to move north or south to deal with changing temperatures, right? If it's, as it gets warmer, if you move further north, the temperature will be a little bit cooler. However, humans as a whole have made enough roads and blockades and systems that it may be impossible for them to legitimately move with these changing conditions. So what it means is that if there are things we can do to help facilitate them dealing with these changes, allowing them ways to move their range, even though that will be a slow process with turtles, that's one thing we can do to try to help in addition to the idea of trying to reduce the impact we have on the climate and at least if nothing else, slow down the changes. And turtles are some of the most at-risk and endangered reptiles regarding extinction. Why? Part of that is the fact that turtles are so reliant on, on the climate and on the environment. And as we change the climate or we mess up the environment with pollution with other things, they have a hard time dealing with that. The other aspect is that turtles as a whole are relatively slow. One of the things they are known for, they are easy to catch. In many areas, they are a key food source because they are easy to find and easy to kill. And that deals then with issues as far as them dealing with these climate issues. And probably the reason that they do worse than things like lizards and snakes and oftentimes various crocodilians, alligators and things like that. Hmm. And so we have to be cognizant of what's happening with these and the impact we're having on them to try to reduce that impact as much as possible. If people want to learn more about your research and see the horned turtle that you discovered, how can they do so? So one of the, the key ways to do that is you can, you can find me on the internet in various places. You know, I have a website, a personal website. that's just stevenjustinski.com. You can find me through the Harrisburg University website. 
But another aspect that is probably key to want to look at is the fact that when we get these really interesting environments that we have fossilized, we want to take advantage of that. So if you have a chance, I highly recommend if you get down to Tennessee, Johnson City, Tennessee, Gray, Tennessee, and Northeastern Tennessee, visit the Gray Fossil Site and see the uniqueness of what we're trying to talk about here. Wow. And we'll have a picture of the horned turtle on our website as well uh, to just kind of show the audience what we've been talking about here today. We've been speaking with Dr. Stephen Jasinski, Harrisburg University of Science and Technology, Environmental Sciences and Sustainability Professor. Thank you so much for taking the time out to speak with me, Dr. Stephen. Thank you for having me. You're listening to The Spark on WITF, your home for NPR and discovering all things local. I'm Anaya Falcon.